Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Skywalk Podcast. It's the fourth installment of the podcast, so thank you for tuning in. If you didn't listen to the previous episodes, I would recommend you check those out as well. But I am back and solo once again, unfortunately, on this episode, but we will hopefully get my co-host back in soon. I know I've been saying that for like a couple episodes now, but because of my observatory job, I moved off to college sooner than most other people, and I have a lot of free time when I'm not working, so that's why I've been trying to put out these episodes the best I can, bust them out a little bit, catch up, but school is starting up soon, which means everyone will be moving up here shortly, so I hope that we can uh, be back in the regular swing of things within the next couple episodes. I'm also slowly transitioning this background of me portion into a general news and update section, so bear with me. I think by the next episode I'll make it like that, but for now, we all have a little bit of the best of both worlds. One thing that I would like to mention is that the Extra Life Tabletop Weekend is next weekend as of recording and posting this, so be on the lookout for special content and most likely a live stream on my YouTube channel that I'm very excited for. Like always, I'll go over a couple things and then we'll jump right into the episode. So hello, I'm Gavin, your host for this podcast. I'm an astrophysics major who hopes to pursue a PhD in the field. In my spare time, I do astrophotography and I'm a nerd for all things space. I also work at an observatory, so now I can feel my love for all things space in all aspects of my life. But that also means I will be getting more knowledgeable in this field a lot faster than I expected, so all that info will be passed down onto you guys. You may have also heard of me through the other things I do. I run two other podcasts that you should be able to find on whatever platform you're listening to this one on. The first is my newest podcast, Dicing Card. In that podcast, I review and explain the playthrough and my thoughts on some board and card games that have been sent to me graciously by some companies. Very exciting stuff. The second episode actually just came out a couple days ago, and in that one we talk about a game of cat and mouth which is a game by uh, the team over at Exploding Kittens. It's a really weird, wacky, kind of almost table tennis pinball type of game. It's cool. My other podcast is called the Hot Cocoa Chats Podcast, where I run script-free with a guest. We just kind of chit-chat about whatever we want. It's bonkers, it's calming, and it will hopefully be getting more episodes soon. I also run my own mostly gaming YouTube channel called Zombified, that's Z-O-M-B-E-F-I-E-D for those that need the spelling, along with accompanying social media accounts for everything that I do, so make sure to check those out. Those links will be in the description. I think the only thing I don't have a social media account for is a hot cocoa chat. Alright, but that's enough about me. If you want to learn more about the things that I do in my personal life, it's best to go check out that YouTube channel where it's more personal. Um, dicing cards, I don't get too personal in that one, it's mostly just about reviewing, and Hot Cocoa Chats is also, like, that's the whole point of it, is just talking, getting to know me and stuff like that, and my guests. Alright, so I'll probably stop doing as big of an intro for the future episodes, but for now, bear with me, again, I will make this quick. In the Skywalk podcast, I will spend each episode talking about a different space object, I'll go through a couple different categories of information and tell you guys about this object. 
Every once in a while though, I will take a step back and we will look at the bigger picture of these objects and I will pick a constellation that I will talk about. In these special episodes, I will be joined more closely by my friend Jillian, who is usually a co-host and and she'll be more involved in those episodes since she is kind of the resident astrology nerd and I do not do astrology. So she's going to be the one for all the astrology needs when we get into constellation stuff. Along with the episodes, make sure to follow along on the Twitter at SkywalkPod where I'll be posting graphics to go along with uh, what you're listening to so you can get a better grasp of what I'm talking about without having to scour the internet. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, then there will be the graphic that I've pre- I've posted for this episode on Twitter on the screen right now. So it'll just be sitting there so you guys don't have to do two things at once since YouTube is a kind of, it's a video thing, but podcasts, my podcasts are audio right now. Now that we have a general understanding of how this show will run, let's go over what these so-called Messier objects are. So Charles Messier was a French astronomer born June 26, 1730 as the 10th of 12 kids. As a young kid, Messier became fascinated with space objects after a few space events that happened in his town. At the age of 21, he joined the French Navy and would eventually begin working at an observatory in Paris. He continued his fascination in comets, eventually getting coined the nickname Comet Ferret by King Louis XV. In 1758, he noticed a strange cloudy patch in the constellation Taurus while observing a comet and took note of it to help astronomers not mistaken it for a comet and started cataloging other comet-like, quote, objects to avoid. The objects that he saw is known as NGC, or New General Catalog, uh, 1952, but would eventually become known as Messier 1, or just plainly M1, which is the same kind of format I'm going to talk about uh, all of these objects, or more commonly known today as the Crab Nebula, which the Crab Nebula is what the first episode of this podcast was on. So definitely go check that out. You also learn a lot more about Charles Messier. Messier died in 1817 and by then had created a list of 103 objects, but the Messier catalog would be revised in the 20th century to be at a total of 110. And so last, the last couple episodes, I mentioned that I don't know why we got those seven extra objects and I didn't know where they came from. I have an answer for you guys now. So basically... His assistants and other researchers followed up on his side notes and other like things that he was jotting down. And so astronomers were looking at those and basically came to the conclusion that there, he actually had 110 objects rather than 103. The 103 are official what he said. These are my objects. But he noted down a lot of things and given more uh, advanced technology and understanding of the sky and whatnot, we actually think that it's 110 objects now. So that's where those other objects came from. I'm glad I could finally get an answer for you guys. All right, that is all the backstory you guys will need as we embark on our journey through the stars. Hopefully everyone made it to this point, and if you are still conscious, then thank you. You're a cool person and get yourself a cookie for all your great work. As always, star cookies get bonus points. But enough chit-chat, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. But well, I will just make a little side note here. So all that that I just went over didn't take too long. I was trying to make it get through it faster. I'll probably, I might, I'll keep a little bit of a review of who Charles Messia is and do like base, more basic overview of the things that I do. But after this, it'll be five episodes and this is the fourth episode. So 
I think that that's enough time that you guys should at least go back and listen to the original ones uh, to get a better understanding of who I am, who Charles Messier is, all that kind of stuff. So I'll, kind of, I'll phase those parts out and I'll probably put in, I'm thinking kind of just a general space slash life update. So any fun things that are happening in my life or content that I've created, as well as any big space news that's happening like a couple weeks ago, it was a couple weeks or, I don't know, very recently either way, like within a, the last month, Saturn was in opposition, which is, uh, I won't get too into, but basically means it's it's the brightest and most optimal viewing point for Saturn. And so like little things like that or any cool space news that I, I hear or see. So that's just a heads up of what I'll probably be changing this intro section to before we get into the objects. But like I said, without further ado, let's get into it. So Messier 4, which is another globular cluster. M4 does actually have some notable stuff to it. This cluster was discovered in 1745 by the Swiss astronomer Jean-Philippe Loy de Chezot. I, I hope I pronounced that well. I'm usually not good at pronunciations, but let's hope so. He originally cataloged it in his own catalog as number 19. On April 13th, 1752, the French astronomer uh, Nicolas Louis de Lacalle um, noticed it and cataloged it as locale L.9. He noted that it, quote, resembles a small nucleus of a faint comet, end quote. This description is likely due to the fact that the telescopes back then uh, weren't exactly what they are today. And we've seen that in previous episodes about how different, as very quickly as technology advances, we can get better equipment. We start understanding stuff a lot better than what we used to. It was then cataloged by our own man, Charles Messier, on May 8th, 1746. It was actually the first and only globular cluster to have had its individual stars resolved by Charles Messier himself. Messier note, noted, quote, cluster of very small, faint stars with an inferior telescope. It appears more like a nebula. This cluster is situated near Antares and on its parallel, end quote. So this is kind of cool. If you guys remember, the other globular clusters that we've gone over so far, uh, some found by Messier himself, they weren't resolved until William Herschel looked at them later with a bigger and better uh, telescope, like 20 years later. And so this one is actually Charles Messier himself being able to identify those individual stars which are really cool because remember previously he, he he saw these globular clusters and didn't realize that they're what they are he thought they were nebulae or any type of thing because and actually one he made a note being pretty stern that he's like there is no star here but this one he actually said oh yeah no it's it's a cluster of stars which kind of makes me think, why didn't he go back to the other ones later and be like, wait a second, maybe those other ones are like this because it kind of resembles the same shape? But who knows? I thought that was cool. So we have these three astronomers that got their crack at discovering the object and with our man, the Comet Ferret, actually resolving the stars. 
But that's kind of where the discovery ends. These globular clusters are never usually the, as big of a discovery story as other stuff. Like I know the Crab Nebula had a whole big history of discovery. But like we we know now, or if you're just listening to this this episode for the first time of the podcast, that globular clusters are the oldest, some of the oldest stuff in the known universe. So that kind of explains why discovery is like, well, they've always been there. So now we know where it came from, what does it look like and all that. So last time, my definition of a globular cluster was that we think these are from the near the beginning of the universe, the universe's creation, where galaxies weren't completely a thing yet. So these are high densities of stars that were eventually picked up by the Milky Way and now orbit within it. I will expand on that theory a little bit more so that we have a bit more science behind it. And so one thought is that these globular clusters had to have formed from like giant, giant, absolutely insanely large uh, clouds and masses of gas. Because, you know, there's just gas floating in space. Um, The gas gets compressed and collapses and forms stars, which is still how stars are formed today. If you look at the Pillars of Creation, which is a very beautiful, look at the NASA photo of that, it's beautiful. The Pillars of Creation which actually is part of something that we'll talk about later, is a star-forming region, and it's just huge densities of gas. So that there's so much that basically over time it just forms, it forms together and kind of snowball effects, kind of like literally throw a snowball in snow, it gets bigger, and then the bigger it is, it just like kind of exponentially gets larger. Fusion happens once gas gets too compressed, and that's how... Uh, stars are formed and ignite but the universe is old enough that there is less free gas available today than there was at the start of the universe when things were still relatively close and hadn't had the time to expand as much because remember we're gonna we're going with the theory of the big bang theory with so some sort of singular singularity point explosion everything was created so everything was really close together relatively considering that the universe is 13.8 billion years old that's a long time for things to expand so things are moving very fast and over billions of years it everything gets really far out of each other's reach and so since everything is spread out so much that's why we don't see new clusters really today forming because there's just not as much gas. There's not these huge, insane, unfathomable amount of gas to form like these hundreds of thousands of stars in one area. We have stellar nurseries that are enough to make like a bunch of new stars, but just not enough on the scale of this when all there was was just gas and matter ready to like be created into objects. So that's a little bit more sciencey of why why these are such old objects and where they came from. So with a right ascension of 16 hours, 23 minutes, 35.22 seconds, and a declination of negative 26 degrees, 31 seconds, 32.7 minutes, and a radius of roughly 35 light years, M4 can be found in the constellation, constellation Scorpius, the scorpion. So last time we talked about how constellations have big areas in the sky designated to them. Uh, like there's constellations we always think of as the stick figure drawings that are kind of connect the dots between all the stars. 
which yes, those are the shapes within the constellations, but constellations are giant sections of the sky that kind of fit together like puzzle pieces. But don't worry about that for this constellation because it is quite literally in the heart of Scorpius. If you look due south, like in you as a person, not in the sky, but just like north, south, east, west, if you like due south, the opposite direction of Polaris, the North Star, you will basically immediately find this constellation. It is not that hard to find. Um, it just depends where it is in the sky, depends on time of year, time of night, blah, blah, blah. But Scorpion, Scorpius is this curved sort of semi-serpent looking constellation. Even though it's a scorpion, it kind of looks serpenty with how the stars are curved. And it's right, right on the vertical line that makes south, you should see a very bright, very red, very flickering star. So due north, due east, due west, due south. If you look due south, basically... Scorpius, depending on where it is, you should see this very red, flickering, flashing star. This is called Antares, or it's basically literally translated to like anti-Mars or not Mars because it's a very red looking star that, you know, it. we don't want it to get confused with the actual planet. And it's it's red for a lot of re for a different reason but that's just because of the phase in the star cycle it is it is a red giant it is slowly starting to swell and die out and eventually explode and that is right near the head of the scorpion in like the shape of scorpius the head down and left of antares is where the curved body starts and the three bright stars to the right of Antares, and the stars are vertical, so like right to the right there's one, up there's one, down there's one. Those three make up the head of the scorpion. So some say Antares, especially since it's red, kind of makes up the heart of the scorpion. Anyways, you found Scorpius and Antares, while M4 is just to the right of Antares, like relatively right next to it. You shouldn't have to go far at all. I think this is the most straightforward object that we've had to find. So that base that makes me very happy. It's so it's so easy to find. And also like make sure go it's always good to go to the Twitter just to get your head wrapped around it a little bit better. But again, Scorpius, there's a big red star right in the heart of it. That's in Terry's and just to the right of it, assuming Scorpius is kind of upright. Right to the right of it is M4. And actually, I was talking to someone at the observatory and they said with, depending on the eyepiece and stuff, you could actually get both objects in the same eyepiece, the star and the cluster. So pretty close, you know? So towards Scorpius, M4 is just about 5,500 light years away, roughly. I've, I saw two different things, 5,500 and 7,200, but it... Probably depends on when those publishings were put out there. Uh, remember, a light year is a measure of distance, not time. This actually makes it the closest globular cluster to us. I believe in the last one we talked about the farthest one. This one is the closest. So what does M4 actually look like? Well, while you check out the images on where it is located on the Skywalk pod on Twitter, you can see an image of it because, again, I will put all of this in the same 
like collage photo on Twitter. But M4 looks uh, pretty close to the other globular clusters, quite honestly. This means it is a giant magnificent collection of stars in a very small area of the sky. As most things in space are, it is very circularly shaped, which is what makes it a globular cluster. Imagine you had a sheet of black construction paper and you sprinkled a drop, sprinkled or a drop a bunch of salt in the center. Every dot is a star. Different colors are different ages of stars. The object has a notable amount of red and orange stars, actually. I thought it was kind of cool because some of the other, other clusters are kind of just like, yeah, they're all relatively the same color. But this one had a lot of red and orangey stars. And I like I like the, the red stars. This cluster is a little less dense than the last one we covered. Actually, quite a lot den less dense. M4 is estimated to house just a bit more than 100,000 stars. So last time we were talking about like half a million, this one's only about a half, a th like, or a hundred thousand stars, which also makes it a, uh, like, wow, globular clusters are huge in nature. It is a kind of a smaller one. But what is cool about it is that of those stars, there are up to like 40,000 white dwarf stars. I'll touch on what those are a little bit more. M4 has an apparent magnitude of positive 5.9, which puts it possibly technically in the realm of being able to see with the naked eye in a dark sky location with perfect weather. So before we had ones that were just over six, because remember the more positive uh, the number, the harder it is to see, the more negative a number, the easier it is to see for us because the scale is backwards. And so our eyes, are able to see just around positive six. And so this one is technically 5.9, which means that should be a lot better to see and easier to see. The only downside is that it's right next to Antares, which Antares is a, is a bright star. So I feel like chances are you probably might not be able to see it because like with the naked eye just looking because of how bright the star is that it will wash it out. But Simple, small little telescope, set of binoculars even, you'll be able to see it, no problem. And also everyone's eyes are a little bit different, so, you know, it kind of it kind of changes in astronomical viewing. So it all depends, but either way, it's right around where our eyes can see, which is cool. And speaking of, the best viewing time for M4 is during July. So we just kind of passed it, but it means it's still going to be pretty good to view right now since we're doing this episode in August. And like usual, I couldn't really find any sort of cultural representation or history records of significance for M4. So instead, I'll use this time for a couple quick facts. While Messier 4 is the closest globular cluster, it is also generally one of the closest Messier objects like in total. I think there might be two that are closer than it, but it's right up there with like being the closest. The object is known to have two distinct classes of stars, which we believe means it underwent two separate cycles of stellar formation, which is really cool that this cluster happened in two different chunks. I mentioned earlier about the 40,000 white dwarf stars. White dwarf stars are the dying cores of stars. They are cooler, fainter, and difficult to detect. For reference, in M4, the brightest white dwarfs are no more luminous than a 100 watt 
light bulb if it were at the distance from us to the moon. So that's pretty faint. And the faintest of these white dwarfs in the cluster is that of a 2.5 watt night light at the same distance from us to the moon at 2.5 night watt night light. So basically they're incredibly faint. But these white dwarfs are the end of the life of a star whose mass is smaller than that capable of being a neutron star or a black hole. So kind of stars have two different paths. Either they're highly dense, a lot of mass in them, which create supernovae and these giant explosions with um, that leave neutron stars or black holes. Or they ha- they go they're less massive, kind of like our sun, where they'll they're, they'll swell and they'll still like kind of explode and stuff, but they're not as magnificent as these supernovas that we always hear about. So those are kind of the two paths. So white dwarfs usually come from that one. These white dwarfs begin extremely hot and then cool until they become a black dwarf. They calculated that this process should take actually longer than the current age of the universe, 13.8 billion years. So that's why we actually don't see any black dwarfs yet. We see a lot of white dwarfs, but there's no black dwarfs because we think that this cooling process actually takes such an incredibly long time that we, like, we're just never going to be able to f- see them. And so Messier 4 does seem to be a relatively important and sort of studied object. Last episode, we talked about variable stars and M3 having like over 200 of them or something stupid. Yeah, M4 has 43 known variable stars. And then we have also learned previously that globular clusters are the oldest objects in our universe. M4 is estimated at around 12.2 billion years old. And so that can be compared to our universe at 13.8. And I think the oldest of the globular clusters are only uh, listed as 13 billion years old. So this being at 12.2 is actually really close to being some of the oldest globular clusters. So that is your guide into the very close object that is Messier 4. This object is kind of nice to view since there are a lot of brightly colored different types of stars. I have been fortunate enough to get a look at more globular clusters through telescopes at my time at the observatory so far. So I can say that first-hand globular clusters are really cool and bright to look at not like burn your eye out or but you don't have to strain at all to look at these objects and actually last night we got a surprising amount of clear sky even though it's supposed to be completely clouded over it was actually perfectly clear because weather apps but i we were it was able i was able where i am to be able to see the perseus double cluster actually just with the naked eye and same with the andromeda galaxy you can actually see a fuzziness of these objects because our eyes can't make out light that far but we can kind of see shapes and so we see this general fuzzy circle that is these clusters because these clusters are so bright it's really cool and fascinating i'm starting to really love globular clusters there we go uh getting in another globular cluster down and i know i mentioned before that we're kind of in like a little section of the messy objects that has a lot of globular clusters the next one will be another globular cluster but then after that we start getting into open clusters nebulae all that kind of stuff we start getting into different objects so i know we kind of have to work ourselves through this 
but we will make it we're almost there guys and then we're going to start talking about some cool, really cool objects so thank you to all of you the audience for those that stuck through to the end of this you know something i haven't talked about much is the twitter as always so make sure to go check out ask i walk pod on twitter to see the images i talk about in the episode and to stay up to date on the latest and greatest with this podcast also don't forget i have a new podcast that you should definitely go check out the last episode is on the game a game of cat and mouth by exploding kittens not to mention you can go check out my other podcast hot cocoa chats in case you want an unscripted banter between people for hour lastly don't forget to check out my youtube channel zombified for your gaming fix and for the extra life tabletop content coming up because again remember i should be doing a live stream and maybe doing some exclusive content that could be really fun i'm still working out all the logistics but i have some ideas in mind all right i'll get over your hair guys rate five stars comment let me know how you guys liked it what you guys think of this object if you like it if you didn't and i will see you guys in another episode mm-hmm.